Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, April 6th, and today we're talking to Julia Yaffe about possible war crimes in Ukraine and whether Vladimir Putin could ever be brought to international justice, something that many Western leaders are now calling for. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Welcome, everybody, to the Powers That Be Daily. Happy Wednesday. I'm joined right now by the hardest working woman in media, Julia Yaffe. Uh, and unfortunately, she's so busy because the war in Ukraine is now entering its sixth week. Russian forces have retreated, at least for now, from the area around Kiev, which is a big tactical and moral victory, I think. But in its wake, we discovered some truly awful things. Julia, can you tell us what Ukrainian forces and, and journalists have discovered in, in and around Kyiv in the wake of Russia's movement out of the area? Yeah, unfortunately, as Russian forces have retreated from around Kyiv, journalists and Ukrainian forces have found the suburbs around the capital just littered with corpses. Some of them have been executed with their hands tied behind their back, with a bullet to the head. Some have been burned. Some have been shoved down wells. Some have been buried in the woods, evoking a lot of memories of other massacres, namely that of Jews in the area in World War II. The images are just really, really awful. And it shows that Russian occupation is... Brutal. It confirms other reports that we have heard coming out of occupied areas that Russians are basically ruling through brute force and terror. And it's making many people, myself included, worried about, you know, what we're going to see if Russian troops ever pull out of areas they've captured, say around Mariupol or other areas along the Russian border that they've captured. And it seems like the tactics of punishing. Ukrainian civilians, both for the Russian military's failures and for the Ukrainian military's fierce and brave resistance, this is one of the many, many ways that Russia and its military are punishing civilians. And I think you you touched on something scary, which is the TV cameras, the cell phone cameras are are focused on what's being discovered in Bucha. And other other suburbs around Kyiv. Right, right. It seems like Russian forces this week are recalibrating and they're going to double down on focusing on the war in the east. But as you know, this this could go on for weeks, months, years. Either way, what people are discovering outside of Kyiv is just a sliver of what we can expect in terms of uncovering the the brutality, possibly more execution-style killings of civilians, mass graves. On Monday, President Biden came out and called Putin a war criminal and called for him to face trial for war crimes. What does that look like? It seems like a dim prospect that Putin will somehow be abducted and taken to the International War Crimes Tribunal. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the issue. And this is something that, you know, I've been discussing privately with friends who are part of this, you know, the 
the former Soviet universe, writing about it, reporting on it, thinking about it. And the thing we all keep coming back to is after World War II, when the world said never again, so many things happened that were horrible. I mean, obviously different in their details, but just as horrible in their scale. We had Rwanda, we had Srebrenica, we had the genocide of the Rohingya in Myanmar. We had what happened in Syria, the concentration camps in Xinjiang province in China. And the system has stopped none of it. You know, the system that was built after World War II to make sure ostensibly that these things never happened again have failed at almost every turn to prevent massacres like this, to prevent crimes like this, and have mostly failed to capture and deliver justice to the people perpetrating it. We got Slobodan Milosevic, who was trialed. We had Charles Taylor. But these were rulers of small countries. Hmm. I, I can't imagine how you would ever get Putin. We see him always in that room. Doesn't look like it has windows. I, I'm betting he's in a bunker somewhere deep inside Russian territory. I don't know what it would take to get him out of there and put him on trial. There are calls from Europe right now to boycott Russian oil imports to Europe. Uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Europe is Russia's biggest export market for oil and gas. You know, that would be a pretty brave move, by the way, for the Europeans. Like that, unlike us, where we import what, like less than 10% of our gas from Russia, Europe depends on it a lot more. It would hurt their economy too. Yeah. And we, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but we, yeah. the, you know, the US very quickly within the first few days of the war said, we're not going to import any more Russian oil or gas, which is like me saying like, fine, I'm never going to date Brad Pitt. I'm boycotting, <laughs> you know, like, okay. Don't give up hope. But just hours after we got the first reports of what happened in Bucha and the other suburbs around Kiev, we saw the Slovak government say that it was going to keep importing Russian oil and gas. On Monday, Germany said that it would be doing the same. I mean, this is kind of the rub, is that as long as... Putin has these hydrocarbons in the ground that he can find a seller for. And even if he, you know, even if the Germans don't buy it, the Chinese would and the Indians would. And he can keep financing his regime. He can keep financing this war. And this has always been the shittiness at the, at the core of this. And even a decade ago, I remember talking to Russian friends who were like, he doesn't need us. If everybody who disagreed or didn't like him left he'd be even better off. He'd have to pay for fewer people. He just needs however many thousands or tens of thousands of people to operate the oil and gas industry and keep extracting this stuff and getting it out of the country to market. He's fine. This is the thing that's his lifeline, and I don't see it being cut off anytime soon, unfortunately. I want to ask you about these negotiations in Istanbul. What do those look like? Are people from Ukraine... Zooming in to meetings with people from Russia, are people there in person? What is the situation like? And then two, what are both sides suggesting they're willing to give up? And then what is what is at least the end game of these peace talks? Is it just a ceasefire or is this like, let's stop the war? It's a good question. And it's the question. They happened last week for once in person in Istanbul, once via video conference. On Monday, after 
the bodies in Bucha and various towns around Kiev were discovered. Zelensky said, no, let's keep talking anyway. I think the Ukrainians want to end the war, but also they feel that they have the momentum right now, that they have the Russian army on its back foot, that nobody expected them to do this well. And look what they've done to the mighty Russian army, where it seems like a quarter of the invading force has been taken out either due to death or injury. You hear the Ukrainian side saying like, why stop now? Let's win this thing. Just help us win this thing. If you just gave us more stuff, if you close the skies over Ukraine, we could press forward and drive the Russians out of the Donbass and even Crimea, which not sure is true, but that feeling I think is very much there. And the more of these kinds of war crimes are uncovered, the more I think Ukrainians want to fight and fight hard. As we discussed, I think the pressure on Putin is both internal in terms of why would we stop halfway? Why would we negotiate with Nazis? And he would lose a lot of face. He was very clear about what he wanted to achieve in Ukraine, and that was a wholesale dismemberment of Ukraine, a changing of its government, folding Ukraine into the Russian sphere of influence at the very least. The scary thing is that early in the war, people thought that if the Putin's army does poorly, there can be a negotiated settlement and he can use his propaganda machine back home to sell it to the Russian people as actually a great victory, that we actually just did an amazing job and we got everything done that we want. And you tell that to people enough, they'll believe it. But given the response to the negotiations and the announcement of the withdrawal from around Kiev, makes you wonder that, you know, will people accept it? Will people in Russia accept a partial settlement? And will Putin's ego, I think much more importantly, will Putin's ego accept a settlement? And I worry that just six weeks into a war, there's not much incentive for either side to try to end this thing. That's the sense I've been getting from a distance too. Yeah. Thank you, Julia. If you care about this stuff, everybody should be reading Julia on Puck and subscribing to her email, which is entitled Tomorrow Will Be Worse. And it was titled that late last year and the title hasn't missed yet. So uh, <laughs> respect. <laughs> yeah, I know. I really wish it were like, tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow the war ends. Because that would be much better if that came true. But here we are. All right. Thanks, Julie. See you next time. Thanks, Peter. Welcome back, everyone. Now, let's take a quick minute to check in with Ben Landy, our executive editor at POC, to see what's going on in his world right now. Hey, thanks, Peter. I'm Benjamin Landy, executive editor at POC. Thanks for listening. Happy to be here. If you missed it on POC.news, earlier this week, Tina Wynn reported on the increasingly vicious GOP Senate throwdown underway in Pennsylvania, where Bridgewater CEO David McCormick, aka Mr. Dina Powell, is facing off against daytime television personality, Dr. Mehmet Oz. This is probably the most extraordinarily surreal Republican showdown that we've had in the post-Trump era. And no surprise, both these candidates are desperately seeking Trump's endorsement. It's the kind of inside story that can get pushed aside by the bigger headlines coming out of Europe these days. We just heard from Julia, and obviously the war in Ukraine continues to reach new and terrible heights of violence. Um, Julie has been doing incredible work to bring 
those events to life and to our readers. Um, but I am reminded again of how interconnected all these worlds are. Control of the House and the Senate, which could be decided by whether McCormick or Dr. Oz are the one to go up against a Democrat, likely John Fetterman in that race, could go a long way towards determining the future of U.S. posture toward the Russia-Ukraine conflict. This is really meaningful stuff. And especially if a Republican wave election in 22 leads back towards Donald Trump in the White House, we may have a total reversal of U.S. policy in that direction. Of course, the breaking news as I'm recording this on a Tuesday night is the pretty momentous executive shakeup that's happening right now at the soon-to-be Warner Brothers Discovery, which is the product of the massive media merger between those companies that's closing later this month. David Zaslav, the Discovery CEO, who is going to be taking over that combined entity, was expected to shake up the org chart, as my partner Dylan Byers reported just the other week. And now it looks like the corporate structure is producing its first casualties. Ann Sarnoff, who is the chair and CEO of Warner Brothers, uh, Warner Media Studios and Network Group, is exiting the company as AT&T is spinning off that entertainment division to Discovery. And uh, as Dylan had reported, Sarnoff was a big favorite of John Stanky, the AT&T CEO, who made a personal plea to Zaslav to keep her at the company, or at least to give her a grace period. It looks like that is not happening. So we'll be watching to see what this all means. Um, does it mean that Toby Emmerich gets full control over the Warner Brothers unit right now? Is he going to get sent packing too? We do know that heading out the door are HBO Max chief Andy Forsell, and as expected, also departing is Forsell's boss, Warner Media CEO Jason Kylar, who is going to exit officially as soon as the merger closes. Kylar, if you recall, was not particularly popular in Hollywood. After engineering and leading the way on this larger shift away from theatrical exclusivity before movies come to streaming, that happened during the COVID era. He put the entire Warner Brothers movie slate directly onto HBO Max. People who get HBO Max obviously loved that. It hugely boosted the subs numbers. Wall Street was excited about it, but it decimated the box office and was not popular with talent, which of course made Kylar persona non grata among a lot of agents and big celebrities in the industry. So we'll be closely following where he's headed next. And of course, what's next for the broader media landscape after the dust settles on this merger. Stay tuned for more at puck.news and by listening to The Powers That Be. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.